From the ski patrollers at Crystal Mountain, you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into episode 4.2 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome, everybody. It is the 15th of October, and I'm sure all of you snow enthusiasts are jonesing for winter. Some areas of the western U.S. and Canada are already looking like winter, with the central rocky zone picking up pretty significant snowfall into valley locations last week. What a great time to start getting your avalanche brain tuned in. Here are some things I'd suggest doing. Number one, start to track what aspects and elevations of your local honey holes are holding snow already. This snow, if it sticks around, will likely become weak and fasted over the coming weeks. A likely player in the snowpack usual suspect lineup. Number two, go to a snow and avalanche workshop. Many regions host these great continuing education opportunities and it's a perfect place to review last season Hear about the latest and greatest research from snow nerds, check out new gear, as well as network with other riders and professionals. Check out avalanche.org for dates and locations. Number three, sign up for an avalanche course or refresher. Courses have been filling up fast, so don't delay, sign up today. Number four, start to practice with your beacon. Although avalanche rescue is a last resort, It takes practice to be competent in this skill. Make sure to put fresh batteries in for the season and get out with your friends. Snow sure is ideal, but fallen leaves can even substitute for some simple scenarios to shake the rust off. Take it or leave it, those are some ways I like to prepare for the season. Don't forget to tag at the Avalanche Hour podcast in your photos from snow and avalanche workshops, avalanche courses, and beacon practice. It's great to see what y'all are up to. Well, Arlo Dog and I are loaded up in the van and we'll be in Jackson Hole in a few days for a winter weather forecasting class put on by the American Avalanche Institute. Following the class, I'll have some interviews lined up. Upcoming interviews include Don Sheriff, Doug Workman, Greg Epstein, Brendan Cronin, Laura McGuire, and Danny Holland. Following the Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop, I'll be heading up to Bozeman where the guest lineup includes Ed Adams, Doug Chabot, Don Bachman, Alex Marienthal, Jordy Hendricks, Doug Richmond, Jerry Johnson, and Kevin Hammonds. Maybe you recognize some names. If you have questions for any of these guests, I will surely work them into the interviews. Just email them to me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you're just finding this podcast, I put out episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month from October through at least May. The initial impetus for the podcast was to create a platform where people within the community could share their stories of close calls and accidents so that others may learn from them. 
To that effect, this is your podcast. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, please reach out and we'll record, produce, and share it. Along those same lines, if there's a specific topic you want me to drill into a little more or someone you want to hear on the show, please reach out and I'll do my best to make it happen. Think of this as our podcast. Get involved, join the conversation. The podcast sure wouldn't be possible without the generous support from TAS, Gazex, and 10 Barrel Brewing. Give TAS a follow on Instagram to see all sorts of cool installations of Gazex and Obel X Exploders, as well as remote avalanche detection systems. They are at TAS by MND on Instagram. Check those guys out. 10 Barrel Brewing has some awesome Pray for Snow parties lined up that will feature a couple of their new films. Hold My Beer is a snowboard film, and Walks This is a ski movie that highlights some of 10 Barrel's talented athletes. They're definitely worth a watch, and you can see that at the next Pray for Snow party at the Boise Pub on Saturday, November 26th. If you're in the area, you won't want to miss it. This episode features a couple of badass patrollers from Crystal Mountain, Washington. I met both Robin and Sarah while guiding for Alpine Ascents International this summer based out of Seattle, Washington, and it was great to sit down with them and talk about some of Crystal Mountain's finer details of the Avalanche Forecasting and Mitigation Program as well as the Dog Rescue Program at Crystal. Up first, we get a nice overview of what the mountain looks like and peek inside the Snow Safety Program from Robin Pendry. Dropping in with Robin. All right, Robin Pendry, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Robin, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about your roles in the guiding world and the ski patrol world and and snow safety as well. Well, I'm from Logan, Utah. I moved out to the Pacific Northwest in 2010. And since 2016, I've been a full-time ski patroller and mountain guide. I ski patrol at Crystal Mountain and I work for Alpine Ascents International during the summer guiding on Rainier in the North Cascades and up on Denali. Awesome. So you grew up in Logan. What, what, uh, what, how'd you get into skiing and, and the snow world? Both of my parents ski. My mom's a resort skier. She loves the downhill and my dad will avoid resorts like the plague. He hates lines and people and lifts. So I grew up ski touring with him and downhill skiing with my mom. Nice. And so what are some of the zones around Logan that you guys would, would hit? Because that's kind of a little lesser known area. We don't want to give any, away any secrets here, but um, a lesser known area than kind of the central Wasatch. Yeah. It? There's some really cool terrain up there. I grew up skiing at Beaver Mountain, so family owned little resort, which was great because it was small enough that my parents could kind of just release me onto the hill every Sunday. And ski touring with my dad, I mean, we spent a lot of time just heading up forest roads, whatever was plowed, trying to avoid snowmobiles. Um, My dad's definitely an emphasis on the cross country rather than on the downhill. Uh, He started telemarking back when the gear was still leather and three pin bindings. Nice, the Merrill super comps maybe? Yeah. Those are still pretty good boots, I think. So then what what, uh, spurred your interest in avalanches and, and snow safety? Uh, I remember my dad telling me when I was really young and we were kind of touring about that I was going to stand on one side of the slope and he was going to cross it and I had to be really quiet and listen for any cracks because if we heard any cracks or collapses then we needed to turn around and go. That's the first time I remember thinking about avalanches. 
and it was a pretty low-tech way of managing avalanches. My dad's strategy was uh, complete avoidance rather than, you know, beacons or shovels or probes or backpacks. Um, and then I didn't really deal with avalanches again until I moved to Seattle and I took a rec level one course and remember sitting there thinking, this is somebody's job. That's so cool. I wonder how you get that job. So you moved to Seattle and, and started ski touring around around here? Around Did you move straight to Enumclaw or the Crystal area? Or? I started in Seattle, started ski touring all up and down the Cascades, um, kind of a cobbled together kit that a college student could afford and had a lot of misadventures along the way. Spent a lot of time in terrain that I probably shouldn't have been in and conditions that I definitely shouldn't have been in. Um, and then I picked up the ski patrolling job in the winter of 2016-2017. Moved down to Enumclaw and Crystal. Okay, right on. Um, so paint us a picture of what Crystal Mountain's terrain is like. What are, what are some of the characteristics and access to backcountry terrain? Just try and paint that picture of what the, the whole mountain looks like and, and its um, presence and, and proximity to Mount Rainier as well. Well, I'm a little biased. I think Crystal's the best resort in Washington. It's immediately to the east of Mount Rainier, um, 2,600 acres, so pretty large for Washington. Uh, 2,300 of those acres are accessible via, via lift. The other 300 are accessible only via hiking terrain. And then there's fairly substantial backcountry access either through some exit gates where you ski down the backside of the ridge. Crystals all spread out along kind of a ridge line and a basin. So the area that leads back to the ski resort is all inbounds, the other side of the ridge out of bounds, and then there's other areas within the basin that are beyond the um, limits of our ski resort. So substantial backcountry and then substantial expert-only hike to inbounds terrain. Okay, and, and how do you guys um, effectively close that the gates or the access to the backcountry or is it open all the time? Yeah, we don't close access to the backcountry. Um, we will close access to sections of our inbounds terrain. We tend to focus on our mountain in kind of a three-staged uh, prioritization. So we have our main area that we work to get open quickly um, and only would be closed in very extreme avalanche situations. We have our Northway area, which is kind of our second round, and then we have our South Back area, which is our third round. It seems like these days we're able to get to our south back area usually within the same day or the day after a significant storm, but that's our lowest priority on opening. Okay. Um, what uh, maybe talk a bit about what the snowpack is like? And what uh, you guys get some? I mean, you have a maritime snowpack, obviously, um, but we've talked a bit about how there are persistent weak layers in the northwest, and, and so yeah. maybe talk a bit about what you typically see in a season, in the layering of the snowpack. Yeah, so maritime snowpack and what everybody knows about that is um, stable, user-friendly, easy to work with. And that's true, but maritime snowpacks are also really defined by quick changes, right? So we get a lot of snow. I think, depending on which source you look at, each year averages around 400 inches. Um, this past year it was a little below that, but some years it's significantly over. So lots of snow, uh, lots of precip in general. Sometimes it falls as the uh, R word, rain, but very rarely, never mm. happens in Washington. Um, and because of where we're located, um, kind of on the east, northeast side of Mount Rainier, we actually can get significantly blocked by Mount Rainier. Uh, we're in a little bit of a rain shadow from it, which is a really good thing when it's raining two inches at Paradise uh, on the southwest side of the mountain, Crystal might only pick up 
you know, a half inch of water, mm. crazy amounts less, which works out really well for us. In terms of what our snowpack actually looks like, yeah, like I mentioned, when people think about a maritime snowpack, they think about surface instability, so things like storm slab and wind slab, dry loose. But, of course, that's a little bit of a misunderstanding. At least once a year, we end up dealing with uh, some sort of persistent weak layer, specifically near-surface faceting, which happens really quickly in the Pacific Northwest snowpack. And early season, it's, you know, all bets are off for calling it a maritime snowpack. If we get, you know, 6 inches, 12 inches of snow, and then it gets really cold in November, all of that facets out and turns into depth hoar and near-surface facets. And then when it does snow, we have significant, significant avalanche hazard. Right. What about wind loading patterns specific to Crystal Mountain? What do you guys usually see? Yeah, most of our storms come from the southwest. Like I was mentioning, that's why Rainier can act as a either a blocking agent or sort of a convergence zone. Um, so since our resort is facing east-northeast, we tend to benefit from that. A lot of snow blown over into the resort. When we have east patterns, resort gets more stripped, takes all the snow and leaves it on Mount Rainier. Um, and then within the resort itself, of course, you know, wind might be predictable at high um, atmospheric layers, but in the actual mountain terrain, all kinds of things can happen. And our terrain is unique in that there's a lot of kind of valleys and bowls that scoop up snow. So even if the wind is coming directly from the east direction, they'll still be loading in the resort in specific ridge features and bowls. Okay. Um. How big is Crystal Mountain Ski Patrol and, and what does kind of the snow safety department look like? How, how many staff do you have specific to forecasting and, and working avalanche mitigation? We have about 30 full-time patrollers, a fairly small pro patrol for the size of the resort. We rely pretty heavily on our volunteer patrols. Um, there's about 100 volunteers and they work only on the weekends. Uh, so on the weekends you have a combination of pro and volunteer, on the weekdays you have a combination, you have just the pros. And only the pro patrollers are involved in control work, like most resorts. And our snow safety team is fairly small within that small patrol. So there's the um, lead forecaster, there's me as, you know, assistant forecaster, and then we have two snow techs, or snow safety techs, and one gentleman who runs kind of our inventory and maintaining our tram lines. Um, so generous estimate, the snow safety team is five people. That doesn't include our dog program, of course, which is its own uh, organization. And then all of the patrollers, the pro patrollers, are involved in actual control work on a day-to-day -day basis. When we send out control teams, we need everybody who's on that day. Yeah. Yeah, so talk a bit about the tools that you have in your arsenal for, for avalanche mitigation. Crystal Rye is primarily on hand charges. So we use um, smaller shots just deployed by hand from most of our routes start on ridge lines. Um, and then when we're dealing with deeper problems or bigger test shots, we use larger bags of explosives. We also have um, three Gazex exploders, which we use to kind of protect some of our cat access to the upper mountain. Um, and right now we only have one area of the resort that has those gas exploders, but in the future we might consider more. Right, awesome. And you mentioned bag, larger bags of explosives like AMFO. Yeah, Pretty exactly. effective tool in the Northwest. Yeah, and we don't use those on a day-to-day -day basis, but we certainly use those when we're testing for um, deeper layers in the springtime. I mentioned earlier that, you know, if we have depth horror or near-surface facets way down, it'll go dormant and not be an issue until 
April when it starts raining and then right. we get water percolating down to those layers and we can have some really large destructive wet slabs. Yeah, I bet. So Robin, you mentioned um, you, the strategy of staged openings for the mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and so run us through a typical control morning um, and maybe talk about critical thresholds of, of what might shut some of that terrain down both during an ongoing storm and then if you reached a certain amount of water weight or a certain amount of wind loading, you just write off certain terrain for the day. Talk about kind of the strategy and, and your mindset going into some of these bigger events. Yeah, so a, a typical day, um, I'm looking at the forecast the night before. I'm looking at forecast weeks out. I'm looking at the forecast multiple times per hour per day. Um, but I've been looking at the forecast the night before. If we think that there's any chance that there's going to be enough snow, enough wind to warrant control work, then I'm waking up at 3 a.m. Uh, and about at 3.30, we get in touch with one of our patrollers that we staff at the top of the mountain. We pretty much staff somebody every night at the top of the mountain, hmm. which is great because they can wake up, go outside, walk along the ridgeline, get boots on the ground, let us know, you know, how much surface roughness do they actually see, right? You know, we have those telemetry sites, we have several around the mountain, but they give us a fairly limited perspective because it's just a little snapshot of what's going on right there. And we know that some of them tend to get wind loaded or stripped depending on the weather pattern and might not be accurately capturing what the snow actually feels like. And additionally, that person can get in touch with the cat drivers. And the cat drivers are an invaluable resource because they're driving around all night. They're the ones who are actually seeing like, well, powder bowl already naturaled, or actually we see no snow anywhere. I don't know what the telemetry is telling you, but it's stripped. And that lets us make um, a little bit more informed decisions. So I get in touch with that patroller and come up with a plan for the day, decide how many patrollers we're gonna need to call in, what time we're gonna need to have them in, start talking about things like what explosives we're going to be using, is it going to be primarily ski cutting, is it going to be primarily larger shots, um, and we start putting together that plan. Once everybody arrives, frequently we'll deploy our Gazex exploders before we actually begin hand routes, control work. We deploy main mountain area teams with their shots um, and strive to get the mountain open pretty close to our advertised on time time frame every day. We actually, I think we do a pretty good job of getting the mountain open right around that advertised time. After we've opened our main area, we try and get skiers on that terrain as soon as we can because, as you probably remember from working at Solitude, like one of the most effective tools for avalanche control is just getting skiers on the terrain. Sometimes the way that I think about the explosives is that they help protect the first couple skiers down that line, mm -hmm. but long-term what's going to make that area safe is getting a lot of ski tracks and getting everything tra tracked up. And we're lucky at Crystal, we have a, a really strong skier population, mm -hmm. and they get everywhere. Everywhere that's skiable and some places that aren't, there will be tracks. So we try and get train open as quickly as possible, even if it is stormy because what we don't want is we don't want layers to get buried and then become a problem later in the spring. The more that we can really stay on top of those storm layers, stay on top of near surface facets, the better our resort and our snowpack fares in the long term. So by opening staged, we can concentrate some of that skier traffic. And we also can make use of the fact that, you know, we have a relatively small patrol. So as we're getting terrain open, we're still trying to send out teams to the next areas are still trying to run accidents inbounds. Um, it can stretch patrol pretty thin pretty quick if there's one serious accident while control work is going on in another part of the resort. Sure. 
So after we get our main area open, then we're looking at sending teams north and then after north-south. Um, and that's one of the most fun parts in my mind about dealing with control work is that you're not only forecasting, you're not dealing with just the techie kind of science elements, but you're also playing mental chess with who you assign to what route. So who knows what route, who works well together, who's gonna be finished with a route quickly to set them up to go to that second round route or that third round route. So control days are exhausting, but I love them. And then by two o'clock you have like your second cup of coffee, right? Yeah, or you know, <laughs> eight. <laughs> yeah, they can certainly be long days, I'm sure. Um, but it seems like you have a, a great team that you work with and, and some great tools in the toolbox. Do you ever use uh, night shoots with the Gazex? We will sometimes use Gazex in the afternoon, especially mm -hmm. on days where we have our upper mountain closed. Mm -hmm. So um, particularly mid-season, if we're getting a significant rain on snow event, we might consider just shutting down all of our avalanche terrain. Um, not only is the avalanche hazard way too high, but the skiing would just be very undesirable. And so we will consider shutting down our upper mountain terrain, pretty much just having kind of traditional blue groomer zones open. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we will shoot our Gazex to um, like mid-afternoon. Mm -hmm. So that way the cats can still safely access the upper mountain and then potentially groom for the next day. Gotcha. Um, so let's talk those critical thresholds. Have you, have you noticed in your time at Crystal like certain trigger points of like, oh boy, we need to start shutting some of this down. Like, is that a water weight thing or wind loading or what do you look at normally? Yeah, so in terms of doing, you know, control work, I'm looking for close to a half inch of water, mm -hmm. at least. Um, and then all of the, you know, critical thresholds that you learn about in like an avalanche class, of course, apply. And since we're in the Northwest, our snow does tend to be a little bit heavier. So we can have significant wind loading with stronger winds, whereas in other climates, the snow might basically like disappear at, you know, 50 miles an hour, we can still be picking up wind slabs mm -hmm. at those stronger wind speeds. So I'm looking at Wind speeds, you know, wind speeds, anything sustained over like 15 or 20 miles an hour, but particularly in the like 30 to 40 mile an hour range, we'll get some pretty significant wind slabs. I'm looking at precip over half an inch overnight. Um, sometimes we can shoot down to a quarter an inch and then it has to be the right combination of precip plus wind plus maybe some terrain that's been closed for a while. Right. And then one thing that I do think about is skier traffic, right? How many skiers am I going to be able to get on terrain especially if it's stormy throughout the day. If I know it's going to be stormy and windy throughout the day, it's going to continue to load. I am considering how many people are actually going to get on that terrain to prevent storm slab and wind slab from reforming. So like midweek, if, if it's happening midweek and you don't have the skier numbers, then you got to start looking at some yeah, and we, shut down. We might still shoot it just to kind mm -hmm. of like keep peeling back layers and keep controlling it. But yeah, we're certainly watching that terrain pretty closely. And if there's signs that things are reloading and we are not able to get skiers on it, we're not able to ski cut ourselves, then we might consider shutting terrain down again midday. Sure. One thing I've noticed about these Northwest uh, ski areas is they're not really resorty, right? Like they don't have, like Crystal has a bit of lodging, I believe, but not too much, right? Very limited accommodations, yeah. It's yeah. certainly not a destination, or Washington in general is not a destination ski area, and I think that the resorts are interested in making that change. But we have a fairly 
significant local ski population. People take a lot of pride in their local resorts. People know the terrain really well and people hold you really accountable to getting terrain open. Like people will be upset if it's a good snow day and you're not getting terrain open. And I mean, it's great. We really rely on our skiers to get out in that terrain, to be sending those lines. That way they manage the avalanche hazard for us. But I would say that in, in some senses, um, you know, our expert only terrain there's always the possibility of, um, of sloughs or mm -hmm. D1s. You know, you enter through those gates and walk past the sign that says avalanche terrain, you know, wear a beacon. And um, our guests are certainly taking on a little bit of responsibility. We try and control it to the extent that we think that it is in unlikely that there will be um, a burial depth avalanche. Mm -hmm. But one can never guarantee that there is not going to be an avalanche. And in some terrain, even a small slough can be quite hazardous. Sure, absolutely. It's kind of the cost of doing business, and I think yeah. more and more people are realizing that, and, and wearing beacons inbound. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's not a bad idea. Yeah, wearing beacons and skiing with a partner. Yeah. Um, and then, especially on the big days, taking time as you're going through those gates, it's so easy to get the powder fever, and simple things like not dropping immediately on top of your buddy um, can make a big difference. Even though, even though you're inbound. Even though you're inbound. Right. There's a lot of snow out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let's talk backcountry access and do you respond to backcountry accidents adjacent to the ski resort? How does that work? Yeah, we do. Um, the, you know, the ski patrol is obviously the closest first responders and also familiar with the terrain, familiar with the rescue methods. Um, they do charge for rescue in the backcountry, which is something that I think that some people aren't necessarily aware of. But when you go into the backcountry and if there is an accident, you're percent potentially accepting those costs associated. And usually, I mean, it's not like a weekly thing that we have to do. Maybe once or twice a season we respond to something going on in the backcountry. Um, I think that the public is doing a much better job of educating themselves and making smart choices about when and where they go. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I hope to continue to see that. Yeah. You guys have any sort of check out process or protocol yeah we have a voluntary uh like registration process i think that uh crystal unlike some areas in the country crystal still allows uphill travel within the resort and most of the uphill travel that does happen you know you you get some people midweek just kind of like touring in the resort to get exercise but especially on the weekends there's one main run that accesses a significant amount of backcountry. Mm -hmm. you get a lot of uphill travel along that so a couple notes for anybody who's listening who would ski at Crystal, we have a policy of when we're doing avalanche control work, there's zero uphill travel allowed. And we've got big flashy lights down in the base area. You can call in and talk to the dispatcher if you have any questions. But when we're doing control work, no uphill travel. And that just limits the chance that, you know, somewhere a bomb goes off and somebody is below it in the trees and the patrollers don't know. And that would be the worst situation for everybody. Um, but after those lights go off, we have a voluntary check-in process. We like people to come in just to make sure that they're on the same page as us about where they can and can't travel. And then you can head uphill through kind of green groomer terrain and easily access a fairly significant amount of backcountry. Really mm -hmm. good skiing. And do you have any sense of, of how many people are utilizing that? On a, a growing number. Yeah, yeah, I don't have an exact number, but a, mm -hmm. a really rapidly growing number. Uh -huh. And I think you see that all over Washington. Um, a lot of the touring access is from ski resort parking lots right which from a business standpoint isn't so great for the ski resort right those there, there could be many cars taking up up, up uh, 
parking spots for paying skiers, right? Sure, and I think that we are lucky in that, I mean, the ski patrol certainly, and then the upper mountain in general, recognize the value of touring. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all ski tourers ourselves. We want sure. to continue to access the backcountry. So nobody's trying to shut down access, and we're just kind of relying on people to make good decisions, and we'll keep trying to make good decisions, and hopefully it doesn't come to a head. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like it, it, th- that's what needs to happen moving forward. Um, as this sport of backcountry skiing and riding gets ever more popular. Um, Robin, what is your favorite part about working at Crystal Mountain? I get to work with a really incredible team. Um, I'm sure that all patrollers think that their resort is unique, but I think that Crystal is really unique and that the terrain is incredible. Um, the skiing can be really, really phenomenal and certainly not near as crowded as some parts of the country. And the coworkers that I get to work with, the people I get to work with all love their job, love being outside, and some really talented climbers and skiers and backcountry rangers, people who bring a lot of knowledge and experience to the table. And I've received, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a newer forecaster, I'm a newer patroller, and I've received a lot of support from them. Um, and they've been able to provide a lot of mentorship and impart a lot of knowledge into me, which is great. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that mentorship. Um, what what has what have you felt? So this is your you're going into your fourth, fourth. year patrolling and second year as the assistant snow safety director. Um, and so you have told me before that that felt pretty quick. And so what? What has eased that transition? I mean, I think mentorship is what we're getting at, but talk about that and who who's helped you along the way. Yeah, I've been, I mean, I've moved into the role that I am in unusually rapidly, and I think that part of what's made that feel manageable for me has been support um, from the snow safety director. I'm incredibly lucky I get to work with a really talented forecaster who's supportive and allows room for kind of learning and growth um, has always let me like have a voice and voice my opinion and given me really supportive feedback without being nitpicky or critical Um, and then from the larger patrol as a whole you know um, the first control day that I ran um, the patrol the assistant patrol director who was on duty that day was like it's going to be great. Give me a call. We'll talk through this. Like, let's think about your options. And the guy who runs inventory and trams was like, yeah, just like, let's double check numbers. Let's talk through this. And so how open people are to, um, to, to giving me support and to giving me feedback in a non-critical way has been really beneficial. Um, Mm. I feel like it's a relatively safe environment to explore this new job and learn as we're going that's pretty awesome to have all that support from sounds like the whole patrol um but specifically the snow safety department and um i think mentorship in this industry is is something that is needed and and i'm sure you're mentoring other folks whether you know it or not along the way as well i hope so (laughs) (laughs) um robin can you share a story of a close call or a watershed moment either in your guiding or climbing or or recreational or ski patrolling um, experiences related to avalanches? Yeah, um, this past winter, 
the resort had a significant near miss. A patroller was caught and carried during control work by an avalanche that we ended up categorizing as a D3.5, D4. And the patroller was uninjured, you know, scrapes and bruises, rode it out and was in that sense very, very lucky. But it was a very significant learning moment, I think, for the patrol as a whole, and then also for me as a as a young forecaster, as a new forecaster. Because looking back at our forecast for the day, um, that avalanche was in our forecast. And I think the question wasn't, what did we miss? The question was more, how do we communicate avalanche problems in a way that is specific and actionable for our patrollers. I think that the really interesting part about forecasting at a resort is that, again, you're not just doing the kind of like techie science-driven forecasting, you also have to be thinking about what do I communicate to my patrol in a way that is going to keep them safe and allow them to do the work that they need to do in a timely manner. Because you're not, it's not like you're writing a public avalanche bulletin where you need the general public to understand an idea. And it's not like you're doing just an in-house forecast for yourself. You're somewhere in between the two where you have a group of people that have avalanche education, but a varying degree of avalanche education within the patrol and varying degrees of experience with the terrain. And they are making critical decisions. I think that Crystal um, really empowers its route leaders to, you know, you don't have to throw every shot if you make the assessment that it's not necessary. And so they really empower the route leaders to be making decisions on the fly and kind of choose their own um, appropriate approach to the particular route with significant guidance from the snow safety team. And so when I'm thinking about a forecast following this near miss, one thing that I'm thinking about is how do I talk to the patrol about this? What information do they need? And this accident was defined, or this near miss was defined, I think in some ways by a decision-making trap that I've seen come up a number of times now in control work, um, either just like the near-miss in the sense of like, oh, that avalanche surprised me, or the near-miss in the sense of a patroller actually riding out a large avalanche. And I think that bombs are such compelling evidence that it's really easy to, you know, you're on a route, you throw a shot, no result, you throw a shot, D1 slough, you throw a shot, no result that by the time you get to your end of your route, even if you've changed significant elevation band or changed aspect, it's really hard to disengage from the evidence from those first shots. They're just so compelling, right? You're throwing bombs. And so I've seen a number of near misses and accidents come up where patrollers say, oh, well, I got surprised. And if you really look at the route that they were on, they were dealing with a different avalanche problem by the time they reached that zone when they got surprised but their brain got stuck into the trap of relying too heavily on that strong initial evidence that if you really think about it, doesn't apply at all to the second zone, but their brain was probably applying it a little bit to that zone. So I've been thinking a lot about how when we have routes or we have teams that are moving between avalanche problems, whether it's moving between aspects or moving between elevation bands, or in this particular accident, the team moved from an area that had been previously controlled to an area that was uncontrolled. Mm. And so I've been thinking a lot about when we have teams moving in that way and we expect to see significantly different avalanche problems in different zones, how to help communicate that and reinforce that. So that way the team doesn't get sucked into that decision-making trap. And so what are some of those ways you're thinking about? Specific communication with the team, mm -hmm. I think. Um, when possible, dividing up tasks. So if we have 
um, significantly different avalanche problems between an area that's been controlled previously and an area that's been uncontrolled, it's easy to want to just have a team flow directly into the next route or the next test shot. But it might be worth it just to have them come back through base just to mentally separate those two, just to provide a little mental separation that we are no longer on the same mission. And then when that's not possible, because some routes move through significantly different elevation bands and aspects, um, and we know that there's going to be different avalanche problems in different zones, one-on-one -on -one highlighting that with people, even somebody who's been doing it for 30 years, not assuming that they'll just make that automatic connection from the morning and from the discussion of the avalanche problems, but like making eye contact and saying like, hey, I know you know this, but heads up on this zone, we know it's a problem and we expect to see something different there. Yeah, that seems like a great strategy, Robin, and good forward-thinking communication with your team. Um, I, I, I know I used to see a bit of I wouldn't call it complacency, but when you're on the, your seventh day of control work, right, and everybody's tired, and you're just kind of going, I, I saw people just going through the motions, right, and it's like, yeah, I've been putting this shot here every storm cycle this whole season, why am I going to change it up, you know, like, I think, there, I think that's, I'm glad to hear that you're doing that with your team or that you're thinking about doing that with your team um, to, to kind of positively reinforce some of that better communication. Um, I think that's really important. You guys wear airbags? We do, yeah. We uh -huh. use BCA airbags. Right on. And, and all the time whenever you're doing control work? or Whenever we're doing control work, um, particularly explosive-based control work, uh -huh. um, most patrollers don't use them when we're not doing control work because smaller bags yeah. function is just as well right it's a tough one and we've talked previously about this as well of like when you have building hazard throughout the day it's like well maybe it's probably time we put on the airbag but, right there's right. that like very borderline where you're like am i ski cutting or am i just pushing slough <laughs> right yeah sure um well robin it sounds like you guys have a great snow safety program and patrol program as a whole at crystal and um it's it's nice to hear you talk about the patrol and, and your program in particular with such pride um and and i hope you're I hope you guys have a great season this year any shout outs you want to give to, to anybody that's helped you along the way yeah a huge shout out to the uh to the lead forecaster mike haft and the support that he's given me and the insight that he has he's been a great mentor and a great friend Awesome. Well, well, I hope to get up to Crystal and ski around with you guys at some point and, and check out your program. It'd be great. Um, and I've had a great time getting to know you this, this summer guiding season and, and doing some guiding with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a blast. Thanks yeah. for having me. All right. Cheers, Robin. Robin, thanks a bunch for giving us a glimpse into your terrain, snowpack, forecasting, and mitigation strategies. Up next, we hear from Sarah Cohen, who is the director of the Dog Rescue Program at Crystal Mountain think that these furry friends show up to work just to sell t-shirts and get lots of pets from out-of-town ski guests? Think again. Sarah breaks down what the dog program looks like at Crystal, what goes into training dogs and handlers, as well as what she feels are some of the better training techniques for avalanche dog training. Let's search it up with Sarah and her dog, Piper. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was hoping you could introduce yourself and talk about your background, uh, some of your roles within the ski patrol at Crystal Mountain, how long you've been doing it for, 
as well as some other roles that you hold within the avalanche community and the in the guiding world. Sure, yeah. Um, I've been pro ski patrolling at Crystal Mountain for this will be my 13th season. Um and have worked with our avalanche rescue dog program, uh, luckily since my very first season there at the ski area. And uh, a couple seasons into my time at Crystal was able to develop more of a leadership role with our program, uh, have been in that role uh, for about eight years now. And with that opportunity, I've been able to make my primary focus at Crystal surround training the dogs and handlers that are training to respond for an av- to an avalanche burial. So, Sarah, I'm guessing that you've always enjoyed the company of, of dogs. Did you have dogs growing up? And, and what are some of your other interests? I know you're, you have some other jobs that you hold as well as um, guiding and patrolling, right? Yeah. So when I'm not uh, working at the ski area with our dogs and handlers, I am able to work with some uh, pet dog owners as a dog trainer in Bellingham, Washington. I do that uh, year round in between my time at Crystal Mountain and my time guiding in the Cascades for Alpine Ascents. Uh, I love getting to work with working dogs and also work with uh, pet dogs, uh, down in the lowlands that are also have the same energy level and desires that our working dogs do, uh, and help find ways for their owners to communicate with them better and live the lifestyle that they want to live with them in awesome Bellingham and, you know, the Cascades. Um, this is a passion of mine that wasn't cultivated with my involvement at uh, Crystal with the dog program, but it definitely uh, built it up quite a bit more. I've uh, my first, one of my first memories with dogs is working with my dad with our uh, Brittany Spaniel, who's a hunting dog on some basic obedience um, and have always been drawn to working with dogs and to working with dogs in both a behavioral setting as well as a medical setting. I first volunteered at a veterinary hospital when I was uh, in elementary school, kind of doing the laundry. And uh, now I also work at a veterinary hospital as a vet tech in Bellingham, um, outside of my mountain work and training work. So you started patrolling at Crystal Mountain. And did you know about avalanche rescue dogs? I know you're from the the East Coast. In fact, you're you're from a town just right next to the town that I grew up in, in mm-hmm. Maine. Um, and so we certainly don't have avalanche <clears throat> rescue dogs in Maine. So how did you find out about <laughs> avalanche dog programs? Yeah, uh, I certainly never, <clears throat> excuse me, saw any dogs running around or ready to respond at Sugarloaf or Sunday River in <laughs> Maine. Um, and uh, it was not something I was super aware of going into our uh our program at Crystal. But as soon as I arrived, uh, instantly gravitated towards that work and the handlers involved with it. I found it to be a really welcoming group of handlers who had uh, decades of experience. Uh, At that time, our program was quite large uh, with most of the handlers on their second or third dog. Um, So I was quickly brought under everyone's wing and involved uh, with the group there. Um, and yeah, grow, growing up, um, 
in New England, it, it certainly wasn't something I could have dreamed of as a possibility as a way to combine my love of working in the mountains and love of training dogs. But as soon as I arrived in the West, it, it was something that um, called to me right away. Sure. So I imagine you, you've dug a fair number of, of dog holes and, and kind of helped <laughs> out with some of the training of the handlers and the dogs before getting your own dog at Crystal, I'm guessing. Yeah, totally. I have a, a memory that stands out um, of being in a dog hole for a certification test um, at Crystal, like one of the biggest powder days of the year. <laughs> um, my first season, we had a spectacular year at Crystal. Um, and I, you know, it was one of the better ones out of a great season and spent it um, inside a dog hole for a dog test. And that was how committed I felt right away. Um with my involvement there. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of digging and it, it started as a lot of digging and I'm still doing a lot of digging. Um, yeah, it's definitely not all, uh, just running around in the snow and doing, uh, the, the search games that we do and heroic responses. There's a lot of hard work, um, starting with, uh, lots of digging <laughs> at the beginning. Right. So let's dig into that a little bit. What does the dog program look like at Crystal? How many dogs do you have? How many handlers? Just give us kind of the rundown of, of the ins and outs of that. Yeah. So at Crystal Mountain right now, um, we have uh, three dogs and um, probably to over twice as many handlers. Um, we have uh, eight pri sorry four primary handlers and then another four or so secondary handlers and a couple of handlers that are in training. Um, so they're focusing on that digging side of things and uh, working towards uh, being involved in handling the dog or involved in training behaviors uh, to our dogs out and about on the hill. Our three dogs that are currently active at Crystal, um, we have a five, sorry, Darwin's seven now, geez. Um, Darwin is a seven-year-old Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever. Uh, he is fully certified, so he's available to respond both within our ski area and anywhere in Washington State that there is a need for an avalanche rescue dog to come in and aid in a recovery. Then next is Piper. Uh, she's my dog. She's a five-year-old border collie. She is also fully certified with our Bark group. Um, and then from there, we have Iggy. Iggy is our youngest dog. She's a little bit over a year. Uh, she's a rising star for sure. She came from a breeder in Canada that we're very excited about um, having a pup from that kennel in our program. Um, she's a, you know, what we call a purpose-bred dog. So she's coming from a kennel that is breeding dogs for this type of work. Um, and I think, you know, that is super important um, for us to begin to transition towards more with the dogs that we're bringing in. So we're really excited to have her. And um, right now we're a smaller group than we've been historically. I, we've had upwards of nine dogs in the past. Um, and we're focusing on, on having a smaller group moving forward. Um, and with our transition that we've had, you know, we've been as those very experienced people that I was talking about have sort of moved on and ended their careers and um, phased out of working with dogs. Uh, we're bringing in new handlers. And so a lot of focus has gone into the human side of the dog team and readying them to start looking at a puppy of their own. So what, what goes into looking for a puppy, right? Do you just 
seek out the the cutest puppy in the litter or (laughs) are there kind of some aptitude tests that you go through to to find a dog with the right kind of drive that you're looking for yeah so choosing a dog for this work um, really starts uh, a while before you actually want to have that cute little puppy in your arms and you're looking for a breeder that is breeding um, likely a Labrador you know we we use a variety of breeds but really you know the a go-to breed is still the field lab um, and finding a breeder who um, is breeding like the working end of the line. So you can find a lot of breed variety within the Labrador, for example, that big square lug that families love because it enjoys sitting on the couch and, and hanging out isn't exactly what we'll be uh, choosing for this work. So finding a breeder that's breeding a dog that is both uh, driven to do the work uh, that they're going to be chosen for and uh, physically more designed uh, for this type of work. So we're choosing smaller dogs. We carry our dogs quite a bit to uh, the search site and that's to save their energy for the rescue and to save their physical health for a long career. Uh, our ski area is a ridgeline resort, so we're traversing a lot with the dogs and we want to be able to not tire them out um, as they porpoise through the super deep snow that we get um, in our storm cycles here at Crystal. So smaller dogs and you can find smaller Labradors. Um, the tollers are great. Border Collies can also be fantastic uh, for that size focus that we need. And then we're testing uh, temperament um, after we've sort of tried to set up the, you know, the certain, you know, as much as we can know about the genetics end of the dog that we're looking for, then we look at the temperament. And uh, the breeders often help us with that, but uh, there's also assessments that we can do with the puppies to test um, their interest in working for play, working for food, um, their interest in um, people, which again with the Labrador is is not usually a big uh, leap for those little puppies, um, how they interact with their other the other puppies in their litter um and how they do with things that can some dogs can be sensitive to sounds smells and sights so sarah what what would you say sets your program apart from some other programs throughout the country in the world or or just the region of the pacific northwest yeah i think something that i'm really proud of that we're doing within our program and i'm seeing it happening in other programs in the northwest such as Stevens Pass and Mount Hood Meadows is training that comes from the most um, up-to-date training with methods that are grounded in science and uh, an understanding of what is best for the learner, the learner being the dog, and how to work with them rather than dominate over them. Uh, We use, excuse me, clickers, to train uh, our general on-hill behaviors or what you might refer to as obedience training for the day-to-day stuff outside of search training. Um, We are, you know, not just using little toy clickers out that make sound, but we're also taking that, the entire philosophy that surrounds that and applying it to how we're bringing these puppies up uh, throughout their foundational training and into the years where we're continuing to reinforce the behaviors that we want. So I'm really proud of seeing our entire group of uh, handlers taking these methods on. So, you know, when we're 
working with the human side of the dog team, um, they're ski patrollers. They already really excel in the rescue end of it. They have, you know, huge skill sets surrounding uh, snow safety, surrounding uh, medical response, um, mountain travel. Um, but they're often, you know, in the long list of things that ski patrollers do, they don't always come to the table as dog trainers. Um, and, you know, most of them arrive with a passion for working with dogs. But beyond that, uh, there isn't a huge skill set surrounding training dogs. So I'm really proud of how um, our group of handlers have taken on an understanding of the full picture of working with these guys on the hill, that it isn't just that moment of on the search site that we need to be in tune to our dogs and have really fluent behaviors, but it is everywhere on the hill throughout the summer and how they live with them. Um, and and it's exciting to see how that has changed, um, you know, our our dogs and our team. Um, using positive-based uh, reinforcement uh, has really built a str stronger teams, and I think I've seen it build stronger groups um, and how we work together as different uh, programs in different ski areas and how we work within our program. All right, I got a couple questions for you, Sarah. So sure. when you say clickers, do you mean like a shock collar or is it just an audible no. click for the dog? Yeah, it's it's an event marker. So it could be anything. Like you can use a verbal event marker like yes, or um, but a clicker is a little toy, a little plastic toy that uh, makes a really distinct sound um, that you hold in your thumb. And when the dog does the behavior or an increment towards the behavior, an incremental step towards the behavior that you want, you mark that. And that is conditioned to the dog um, that that click uh, is means that uh, a reward is coming. So mm -hmm. food or play. And um, by marking the behaviors that we do want and building that, you create a really enthusiastic and confident learner. Um, so the dog then associates that um, behavior with the reward. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And it makes for training to be a really joyful experience. Um, you know, I think it, it, it all comes back. It's very easy to think about, you know, sitting in elementary school as the, you know, kids that we all were. And if you got the answer wrong, how if you got a slap on the hand from a ruler would uh, encourage your learning differently than if when you got the answer right or you tried and you got pretty darn close that you got, you know, a little, little Hershey kiss treat instead, you know, mm -hmm. how you would feel as a student sitting in that classroom. So um, we really, um, you know, focus on redirecting behaviors that we don't want by building behaviors that we do want. Sure. And, and I understand, I've, I've heard several times that it's harder to train a human than a dog, really. So do you use the same clicker training with like PBR for your handlers <laughs> or how does that work? Um, or maybe talk about some of the training that goes into, into the dog handler training. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, yeah. D patrollers do work for PBR. That is for <laughs> sure. I don't know that I could, um, stock enough PBR for, um, <laughs> the number of moments that we'd want to mark. Um, so working with the human side of the dog team, uh, is, uh, something that we do most days at some point at the Skiria. Um, we are out, uh, either running drills or we're 
doing morning trainings that are focused around um, dog training and uh, an expectation that, you know, the handlers' uh, enthusiasm for this work should uh, come from an education um, that, that they'll get both at Crystal, but also on their own. And they're provided with a ton of resources through books and podcasts um, and where to get that information on uh, the methods that we're using and how we want to work with our dogs. Um, we'll do uh, group trainings in the morning where we're working um, specific skills with our dogs. And then we'll also just do trainings with uh, handlers where we're discussing um, the um, you know, the learning, the theory side of this, that would really be boring for our dogs to have to sit through. Mm. So Sarah, how are your dogs staying sharp in the off season or, or what are they up to when the snow isn't flying? Are they cadaver dogs or search and rescue dogs or what are, what are they up to? Uh, in the summer, all three of them are kind of doing something a little bit different. Like Iggy is up in Alaska and, the other two are down here in the Cascades, but our dogs are not uh, cross-trained in other uh, search and re rescue applications. So we're working skills that are going to help build what they need in the wintertime, uh, such as uh, we will do some dryland uh, scent drills where we hide a article that has human scent on it and bury it underneath something. Um, but generally, we're focusing on uh, general behavior training, you know, also, again, kind of referred to as obedience um, and conditioning. So keeping them in shape and healthy so when they hop into the ski season, uh, they're not uh, at risk of injury. Kind of like, you know, the humans getting ready for the ski season. Hopefully folks aren't crash training at the moment uh, to get ready for the ski season. It really is best if you do it year round. So, um, lots of trail running and, um, you know, body awareness activities for the dogs to help set them up for the winter. Yeah. Awesome. You, you mentioned bark earlier, which I think is maybe a association of different canine rescue programs within the Northwest. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you guys associate with one another and, and train together? Yeah. Bark is the certifying group uh, that is a collective of Crystal Mountain, Stevens Pass, and Alpenthal at Snoqualmie. Um, and the three ski areas work together to certify dogs that have already certified at their home ski areas and certify out of house at, a, at what is a new spot to the dog. Um, and with that assessment, uh, if they pass, then they are available for a backcountry call out in the Cascades. So anything that might occur outside of the ski area or a major event that occurs at another ski area that might require dogs to come and help, um, they are all going through bark and recertifying every three years. Um, and typically if there is an event in the cascades um, we'll see teams from uh, all all of the members of bark respond um, kind of depending on the incident obviously but um, it is uh, a group that uh, also trains together 
we usually try and get together once a year. Um, and we'll also get together with Mount Hood Meadows down in Oregon and train with their dogs. We communicate throughout the year. You know, it's a, it's a really great way for our dog teams to kind of share information and knowledge between the groups. Um, all of the uh, groups are longtime patrollers as well. So uh, while it's been a quiet couple of years call-out-wise for the teams, uh, there's still a fair amount of experience in the group. Right. Um, so Sarah, something that you've, that we've talked previously about is kind of the perception of canine rescue programs at ski areas. And you've likened it to how people might look at ski patrollers, right? It, it all depends <laughs> on where people's background lead their perception to be. So some people might look at a ski patroller and just see a dirty ski bum. Some people might look at a ski patroller and see a hero. And so what are some of the the perceptions you feel like people look at a canine rescue program and see patrollers running around the mountain with dogs? What do you think some people think and maybe try to demystify that for us and, and our listeners? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different uh, thoughts surrounding what these guys do. Um, I think my one of my favorites that I appreciate, I do appreciate, is just that undying love of it doesn't matter what they do, they're awesome. They're just running around up there in the snow wearing cute vests um, <laughs> and having a really nice time. Um, and then when you you share with uh, those admirers what they actually do, their their minds are kind of blown. Uh, from there. So yeah, there's a lot of different thoughts surrounding what these guys do. Um, you know, there's the dream job mentality and everyone would love their dog to be able to do this work and have a job and have a purpose and be in the snow all winter. Um, and I think, you know, it, th these dogs are very, very lucky. There's all, you know, always a, a tough side to any dream job. Um, I think, these dogs give a lot for what they have the opportunity to do at times they're giving their physical health. They're giving, um, you know, a lot of time in a kennel. We as ski patrollers are out and about a lot during the day and we can't always have these guys tagging along with us. So they do spend a fair amount of time at the top of the mountain, ready to respond, uh, in a kennel. And then I think like the ready to respond thing, the other misconception or question that I get a lot is, you know, how many people has your dog saved? Um, and that's, that can be a tough conversation. The, you know, low numbers of live recoveries that this specific niche has had um, definitely opens the door to an even tougher converse conversation of the other side of the work that these dogs do, which is, uh, providing closure to a family and aiding in expediting uh, a body recovery. Mm. And I think with that, it's, you know, very valuable work. A lot of people love to picture these dogs dragging buried skiers out and everybody high-fiving. Um, and a measure of a dog's experience level, uh, training level, I should say, um, and readiness is how many times they have been out and had a save. And for our current group, it's been a quiet couple of years and we're, we're grateful for that. Um, you know, Darwin being seven 
hasn't had a call out. Uh, and, you know, with only a few seasons left, we'd be happy to say that he never had a call out. We're training for him to be ready to. Uh, and, you know, the reasons that our dogs are not responding is that we haven't needed to. And that's kind of fantastic. Um, we, you know, some of it is luck. Some of it is our, our snowpack. But I think there's, you know, definitely room to give thanks to uh, NWAC, our forecasting center. I think that um, the snow safety program at Crystal obviously is uh, another zone to give props to. But I really, I think that there's some, you know, the education that is happening as well as getting the word out there on the days that people should not be in the back country, I hope is actually part of the reason why our dogs are having quieter winters and people are making better decisions or getting luckier. But I often find that the, you know, the only, me- once people know what these guys do, the only measure of how good they are at that is how many people they've saved. <laughs> right. Which shouldn't, shouldn't be the case. And that, that should be what we're trying to demystify here. Right. Um, totally. And so your teams are are working and training to respond to the worst possible case when somebody isn't wearing a beacon, a reco search hasn't, um, hasn't been a positive find with a, with a reco device in their clothes or whatever. And, and the dot, that's when the dog teams come in. And so it is, like you said, it's a great thing that they haven't had to do that. Another perception that I find I often hear regarding our dogs is referring to them as a tool, as a rescue tool. And, um, you know, we've been within our program trying to shift away from that label and refer to them more as, you know, a resource. A tool implies that you can run out to the store and purchase this and you just have to figure out how to use it. Um, I, there's so much more that goes into the training to make them available for what they, we need them for. Lots of hard work uh, from uh, the entire team, from the individual handlers, and from the dogs that I feel like it removes the fact that we're working with a living, breathing, feeling creature that is very much a part of a tightly bonded, highly trained team. So, you know, it's it's comfortable for people to picture these guys like they do a reco uh, or a transceiver and a continuation on that package that you want to bring to a site. But I think they're as unique and deserve to be viewed as uniquely as a ski patroller or a rescuer arriving on scene. What do you think the most challenging part of being a dog handler in the Pacific Northwest specifically is? Oh, I think the weather, some, you know, the Mm -hmm. ultimate thing that we can't control. Uh, When we're in the middle of a big cycle here in the Pacific Northwest is often when we're needing to respond with the dogs. um, And that makes a helicopter response, uh, for uh, an expedited uh, tra- for expedited travel into the backcountry, pretty much impossible. Mm. Um, we're not having a lot of bluebird days following our really deep um, snowfall, and and then without the deep snowfall, it is uh, it's hard travel for for the dogs. It's hard traveling for the rescuers. 
we've had a few events where um, the snow the snow is so deep and then there's so much more snow that fell on top of that that we have missing people that we we aren't sure if they were if it's a snow immersion incident or a small avalanche um, you know it's just uh, so much snow that it wouldn't really take much more than falling over in the wrong spot um, to be buried so I think um, just the deep snowfall is definitely a big a big challenge for us. When I was talking about size with the dogs, you know, the smaller dogs that we're carrying are ideal. Um, we can't have these super tall, long-legged dogs for the deep snowpack, uh, but it certainly is is tough on the smaller guys when um, you step on to, you know, off the, the cat track that gave you a ride on the snowmobile and step off onto the unconsolidated snow and the dog is already up to their neck. Definitely right. challenging. Um, so I, I know that you guys don't always get heavy, dense snow, but can you talk about some of the challenges with searching a dog through snow with a higher content of water? Does that, does that make it harder than say light density snow? Yeah, definitely. There are so many factors that go into scent and how scent travels, um, time of day, moisture content um, in the snow, um, time of burial, uh, what the snow has had, time to do um, since um, the slide came down. Um, and yeah, we do, we certainly do get quite a bit of clear snow here in the Northwest. Um, and to put it simply, it, it, it's harder scenting conditions for our dogs um, than the um, what lighter snow allows for scent percolation um, from the buried victim or for how that uh, scent on the surface is traveling and for the dogs to catch that scent cone. So essentially you, know, if, you just have a, a shorter window when the dogs are more effective. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I can't. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's pretty variable. It's just, uh, I think it's just cha more challenging scenting conditions often. Mm -hmm. They're, um, you know, uh, s not as set up for success as other, other times, um, other conditions might allow. Um, the, the other conditions that we'll deal with if we're responding in the middle of a big storm cycle uh, that will affect our dog's scenting is, is wind. Um, and often uh, this, these systems are coming in um, with, you know, high winds, um, which will also make it unable for us to utilize a helicopter. And then once we're on site, um, make scenting conditions more challenging for the dog. So, as we're training handlers, you know, there is definitely a development and understanding how scent works and how scent travels. Sarah, I, I understand that you and your dog Piper have a, a book out that was written about you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your book. Yeah, we uh, worked with um, Elizabeth Rush, an author from Portland, Oregon, a couple of springs ago to uh, chronicle uh, Piper's, uh, work days and certification process. And Elizabeth did a fantastic job of weaving, uh, Piper's work day into some, you know, 
similarities to a child's school day and uh, did a fantastic job capturing Piper's work with some uh, it's uh, photography rather than illustrations. Mm -hmm. And she did a really great job of also weaving in um, a little bit of basics on avalanches and snow science, a little bit of dog training, a little bit of house scent works. Um, she did an awesome job and we've, we've been getting a lot of really um, great feedback for people who, um, you know, going back to talking about New England and, um, you know, folks who had no idea what these dogs do or that these dogs even existed to people who have seen these dogs around, but maybe didn't really have an understanding of what they did, both, you know, children and adults alike. It's was written to target um, middle readers. And there's been a huge range of uh, people who have age range of people who have really, really enjoyed the book. So it's called Avalanche Dog Heroes. And I'm sure it can be found online anywhere else, the local bookstores, maybe the, the first priority. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely on Amazon. Uh, we will have it on our website once the ski season starts and our online merch store is open again. Um, and then I, yeah, I have, I hope it's in your local bookstore for sure. Yeah. Those are fading fast and it's <laughs> nice to support the local bookstores yes. first. Um, it seems like that could be a, a great gift in the upcoming holiday season for all of you looking for a nice gift for a, a, a kid out there or an adult, it sounds like. Um, well, Sarah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the canine program at Crystal and, and throughout the Pacific Northwest and some of the some of the different processes that you guys are using to train your handlers and your dogs. It sounds like you have a great program and we appreciate you giving us a glimpse into it. You bet. Thank you so much for having me, Caleb. All right. We'll see you soon. Cheers, Sarah. Cheers. Thanks, Sarah and Piper, for spending some time to explain your program. Thanks to you all for tuning in today. If you have any feedback for the show, you can email me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can check out our website at www.theavalanchehour.com to see guest bios, look for past episodes, or buy a sweet hat, can koozie, or valet strap, all of which help support the show. The website will also have that list of upcoming guests if you want to submit a question to include in the interviews. Join the conversation. Don't forget to give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, T. You the man. Music today was Summer Spliffs and Tabulassa by Broke for Free and made possible by the Creative Commons license. Thanks for the use of your tracks, Broke for Free. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. <laughs>